Welcome to episode number 27 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, we hear from a Dutch pilot who placed second at the recent World Championships in France. It was a tough-fought contest with challenging flying conditions. We also hear from a novice pilot who narrowly escaped a final glide that went wrong, leaving field selection to the last possible moment. And the British Air Training Corps is 80 years old. Many, many British glider pilots got their start with this organization. We look back at its history. That's all on episode number 27 of The Thermal. Dutch ASW-20 pilot Thies Browns recently placed second in the club class at the World Gliding Championships in Mont-Luçon-Goudet, France. For many of the pilots, this contest was a grueling experience with low ceilings and weak thermals, the type of gliding weather that would keep most of us close to the club. For his take on the contest, I've reached Thies Browns in Dubai. Hello, Thies. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, very good day. So, first of all, big congratulations. Placing second is a big deal. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, very happy about that. It, it certainly is a big deal to me. So uh, it's uh, it's very much a pleasure to uh, uh, to get this result uh, after this competition. Yeah, very happy about it. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. This particular contest, from what I understand, was extremely difficult, right? Yeah, the weather was a bit tough indeed. Uh, uh, I'm thinking that's what you're referring to. The, oh yeah. The, the weather wasn't like the weather wasn't great at all. It was mainly um, it was it was some tough days and um, some of the days it was quite difficult to even stay in the air. And then uh, and then all of a sudden the the start line opened and you had to actually race around the task. So it's uh, yeah, it sure was uh, it was uh, quite uh, exciting, but in a very difficult way. Correct? Yeah. I, I understand a lot of the days too. I mean. It was low, you know, you'd have low ceilings and you guys are scratching from one thermal to the next, always in danger of landing out. It was that kind of weather, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's it was very much like that. Um, uh, a few of the days we um, we were around, um, I don't know, a thousand or eleven hundred meters, which um, is around six hundred meters above ground, uh, and then it was blue with thermal strength of sometimes half a meter a second uh, sometimes it increased uh, i have to admit for some periods to like one meter or one and a half meters but there was also there were also parts that it was only like 0 0.2 0 0.3 meters a second and uh and it was yeah it was um quite difficult almost afraid to leave the thermal because you know 600 meters above ground you um it's very scary to actually move on to the next one uh, especially in blue uh, in blue uh, conditions yeah yeah, I mean, you're constantly, you you must have a field constantly picked out because you even going between thermals, you're in danger of landing out. Yeah, that's, uh, that was the exact thing that we were constantly busy with, um, trying to find landable fields while you're thermaling, looking ahead for them and then uh, getting comfortable with continuing. And then once the thermal um, fell below the certain strength, we were unhappy with or uh, when we were reaching the top of it then um you kind of had to add some fields to uh, continue again uh, and luckily um once we moved away from uh mont Duson itself uh to the north the fields became much larger and um uh, and much more landable options uh, and mm. as well the ground became lower 
so we got some more uh, room to play with and then it became a little bit easier and uh, and you could you know increase speed a little bit and maybe even skip a terminal or two uh, if it was required hmm. now did you team fly with your other dutch colleagues um yes uh, in a certain way we did uh, a lot more actually than expected um be- because of our different uh, plane types so so i'm flying the aw20 and he was flying the ls4 we pretty much agreed um not to team fly in a way that we would constantly be on each other's uh, wingtip mm-hmm. but uh, we did agree to um be part of the same team so we would help each other give each other information and if the situation was like it we would um we would actually fly together if it would help us out. Um, but pretty short after we started the competition, um, we it's very naturally it's it, um, it worked out that we we flew a few of the tasks together and uh, a lot of the time even um, on each other still like really together uh, because um, you needed it sometimes to reduce your risk on these difficult days. Uh, so um, so even though we didn't do it for the full competition. Um, I can honestly say that a big part of of, um, of the results I can uh, I can thank uh, Robin for, who was the other Dutchie in my uh, in in the class. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how did he place? He placed the uh, sixth. Yeah, um, yeah, and like I said, we we kind of did it together. So I like to think of it that we together placed second and, and sixth because you know without him I might have been lower as well. And so I like to see it as a team result for the two of us uh, and and. And and I and I hope that uh, that some way he sees it like that as well. Right. And overall, I think that the Dutch did very well at this contest in the various classes. Yes, I'm very um, I'm very proud of the to be part of the Dutch team, and and we uh, managed to be become uh, the second in the team uh, cup, mm. uh, just below Germany. Uh, and and above Poland, so um, we had a yeah we had a good result, uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah I think. I think all of us uh, um, ended up finishing in or just below the top ten. So um, yeah, I think that's. A, I was very glad to see that yeah. everyone did uh, quite well. Yeah, that's very good. Now, getting back to the contest, I understand at one point you actually had to use Wave, and it was the first time you'd actually flown in Wave. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, I've had uh, I've been in the back seats in the, in the flat part of of Germany once before, where we've been in like I, I don't know if you could call it wave. It was like just we we just stayed level for like half an hour. So I, I've experienced experienced it when I was young from the back seats um, in an almost flat uh, land. But um, this was the very first time that I uh, had the pleasure of experiencing it uh, myself, um, and it was actually a shame because um, it was on the very first competition day. Mm-hmm. And we were starting so late. I think uh, we could only uh, the start line only opened around I don't know, f- I don't know, four thirty or five o'clock in the evening. Uh, and we just found Wave, and I was so happy to be in Wave. Uh, it was so enjoyable, but we kind of were forced to leave because the day was so short. Uh, so we couldn't stay and ha- hang around uh, and enjoy it for a bit, uh, which uh, I wish we could because it was it was lovely to experience actually uh, the stable rising air and uh, it was a very big area where we could play around uh, a little bit just gonna say describe the area to me a little bit is it mostly flatland or a combination of mountains what what is the topography like there um yeah so i, I wouldn't call it mountains at all but it's a bit hilly um i think mont is just 
on the edge of the flat area mm-hmm. um so uh, so it's still in the hills so the if you, the, normally the tasks were going to the north and the first 20 kilometers were was still a little bit hilly but um very um yeah uh, very shallow uh, gradients and um and uh, with heights of around I don't know, somewhere between three, four hundred, sometimes maybe six hundred meters. So it was quite hilly. Hmm. But if you would go to the south of uh, Montluçon, the it, it, the terrain became a bit higher. Uh, and I and and if I understood correctly, the the wave that we were in was from uh, one or two long shaped hills to the south uh, west of uh, where we were flying. So um so after twenty kilometers to the north, you're pretty much in flatlands. And um, but above the airport itself, you're you're a little bit in a transition area. Right, 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 right. Now, did did you wind up landing out? I understand there were some mass landouts a few times. Sorry, if I landed uh, out during the competition, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, one day uh, of the training days I actually landed out. Um, uh, there was a little um, front moving in and. Uh, and it was a science area task, and I and I landed out, which uh, was kind of bummed out about it. Uh, however, later, um, like 20 to 30 minutes later, I was joined by uh, Rasmus, which is a Danish uh, competitor, and he was the last world champion. So him <laughs> landing out to my field uh, kind of made me a little bit more comfortable that uh, that it wasn't so bad at all in the end. Yeah. Um, uh, during the competition itself, uh, I did land out once, uh, yeah, and there was a day that uh, the whole field landed out. Mm-hmm. So each and every one of us, and um, and it was more like uh, who could get the furthest, I guess, in the end. Right, 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 right. Those are tough days to be flying in a contest. Uh, they are. Um, um, they could be quite enjoyable because landing out by itself, I think, is not a, is, is not unpleasant. Um, it's just normally it's it's. Um, it's in a situation that you're unhappy because relative to the rest, it's normally not a good sign. But if the whole, if the whole class lands out, it's it's kind of a, it's a nice challenge in the end. You know, to try to get as far as you can. And if you all land out, um, you're not bummed out by the result that much. And it was actually a, quite an enjoyable day, I think, in the end. Now, I read somewhere as well that during a lot of these days, the the conditions were so weak that you were often deviating sort of 90 degrees off course just to find a little bit of lift. Yeah, that's, uh, it happened a few times, yeah. And um, normally, um, the, the, those days, they're quite slow days anyway. So um, so it, um, even though 90 degrees off course is in a normal competition, I think it's, it's very, if you're doing that, something is going wrong or you made a mistake. But um, on these days, it wasn't that... Um, it doesn't. It wasn't that weird. Sometimes we're doing with a whole group. We were deviating ninety degrees for five or ten, sometimes even fifteen kilometers, hmm. and um, and it was the only way to stay afloat. Uh, sometimes, yeah, or that's what I was. What I believe was the best decision at the time, right. um, because I don't know the conditions uh, got worse in front, or uh, or maybe a, a, maybe a bad judgment call five minutes ago, but um, but it developed very quickly sometimes. So um, so yeah, it happened quite often. Yeah, struggling, struggling to survive. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember seeing uh, average speeds of thirty-eight kilometers an hour, <laughs> and I've never seen that before. Uh, not even during my first cross country. So uh, it was. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you can actually call it racing, yeah, but um, yeah. on those days, it's just trying to stay in the air and 
try to make some distance. Uh, that being said, um, it wasn't a complete competition like that. We had sometimes a day or maybe even one or two legs of the task that conditions improved and we were actually able to, you know, get up to speed a bit and uh, and get quite some nice thermals. But um, it never lasted for the full day. Uh, uh, maybe one day it did, but it was the <laughs> the one day that I had a bit of a, a, a bad day, so it didn't really work out for me then. And what was the bad? Day? Was that the day you you also landed out? No, no, that was actually uh, quite a right an a right day for me. Even though I landed out uh, relative to the rest of the group, it wasn't a bad result. Um, but I had another. It was a really good day, a nice weather, like uh, typical racing days that everyone loves, and, and normally I love it myself as well. But um, it wasn't a science area task, and I ended up in the wrong place. Um, uh, maybe by judgment, by my own, uh, by my own choices. I, I'm not really sure yet. I'm still trying to analyze it. But um, I ended up in a, in a more eastern part of the area, uh, while a whole group was west, and and there were some nice streets forming there. And I, uh, in the moment, I realized that I was already too far off the track, and I, I couldn't reach it anymore. Or if I would, it would be such a big course deviation of my uh, original course so um i couldn't really go there and then uh i ended up in the end of the day with some really bad you know the, the end of the day the thermals uh, uh died and um i had to get back home in a very difficult part and it didn't really uh, go well for me that day but um i mean it happens you know it's it's, it's it's there's always one or more days that doesn't go well so um i guess that was the day for me now is this your first world it is yes. So you you did very well it considering was. that it's your first world. Yeah, I'm I'm very pleased by uh, by the result and how it went, and um, it was actually quite uh, unexpected, a bit of a scare actually. <laughs> so um, yeah, it uh, I'm 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 uh, I, w- I wouldn't uh, dare to dream of this result beforehand. Uh, so I, I'm I'm really happy that uh, it uh, fell my way. I guess. Well, it bodes well for the future. Before I let you go, tell me a little bit about yourself. What do you do for a living and how long have you been gliding? Um, I am uh, 30 years old. I'm living in Dubai at the moment, and that's because I'm working for uh, one of the major airlines here in the region. Um, I'm living here with my wife and daughter, and my wife is doing the same job. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been gliding for quite a long time, I think around 15 years. But I haven't been gliding that that much. I've been um, uh, I've been, let's say, after the first maybe uh, three or four years, I uh, I started um, doing my flight training and I moved abroad to uh, America, and then I came back in Europe for my first job and I moved uh, to different countries in Europe. Um, and because of that, I never really had the opportunity to um, to do much gliding. So um, I, yeah, not, I did not much gliding maintain... in Dubai, I imagine. Oh, not at all. No, there's no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's no gliders here. Um, there's no landable terrain either, and there's a lot of airspace. So yeah, yeah. it it wouldn't be a lot of fun. Uh, they they organized some World Air Games before, and they've been gliders in in Dubai, but uh, I've never flown one here myself. Okay. So. Um, so even though I've I've been doing it for 15 years, I think you can, like around 10 years of those uh, years, maybe nine years, I've been only doing like three or four flights a year, maybe five, just to keep my license valid. Well, obviously you you love gliding and the pull is there for you. And uh, congratulations again on your on your second place on, in the club class. And I I look forward to speaking to you again in the future when you when you 
win some more contests. <laughs> I surely, uh, I surely do hope so. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. It was a pleasure uh, being part of this, and uh, yeah, hopefully we uh, we can speak again. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs> Have a good one. Cheers. Tees Browns spoke to me from Dubai. Tees recently placed second at the Worlds in the club class with his ASW twenty. The Thermal Podcast is proud to promote Proving Grounds, an automated task scoring platform designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into cross-country soaring pilots. Proving Grounds is now in use in Canada, Europe, and the United States. And the Soaring Society of America now joins the Soaring Association of Canada by providing support for gliding clubs who want to implement this fabulous cross-country motivational tool. Check out episode 15 of The Thermal, where co-founder Patrick McMahon talks about proving grounds and how it works. For more information, go to their website, which is soaringtasks, all one word, dot com. That's soaringtasks.com. Proving grounds is especially a hit among novice pilots who want to learn how to safely fly beyond gliding distances of the club. This year marks the 80th anniversary of the British Air Training Corps. It was set up in the dark days of World War II and has trained tens of thousands of young glider pilots. And to this day, it's still teaching young men and women how to fly gliders. Andrew Critchell's an aviation author and historian, and he has just written about the Air Training Corps for the iconic aviation magazine, Aeroplane. I've reached Andrew at his home near London. Hello, Andrew. The, the Air Training Corps, how did it all get started? Uh, the Air Training uh, so the Air Training Corps, yeah, that came out of the uh, an, an Air Defence Cadet Corps, um, which was basically set up in 1938 um, by a gentleman called Air Commodore J.A. Chamier. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been in uh, the Royal Flying Corps and Royal Air Force in, in the First World War. Um, and basically, he'd seen uh, what he felt were poorly trained uh, you know, people being rushed out into the front line and then you know, getting hit by, by the, you know, shot down, killed, whatever, by the, um, uh, by the enemy. And, um, you know, he didn't want that to happen again. Um, so he kind of pushed for this to be done. Um, yeah, it was set up just before the outbreak of, of the Second World War. And the idea then was to just get young men indoctrinated into the military way of things and understanding how aircraft work and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think it, it was it was to, to to try and give them as much of a head start as possible um, in the training, in the sort of routines, the the way military works. But but ultimately, yeah, in in being in the air and you know having the control of uh, um, you know of, of of your flying. So it it, it was very successful um, and so successful that the and the government was so impressed by the cadets that were coming out of this um, that they kind of stepped in and uh, formalised the whole organisation. So that, that's when the Air Training Corps was born, and that was in February 1941. Um, and you know, within a month, um, the, the size of this organization had doubled to over 400 squadrons. Uh, sorry, within a year, the, the size had doubled to over 400 squadrons. Um, so, I mean, it, it, and the number of cadets being trained you know, grew eightfold in, in, in just in the first 12 months. So it, was a, it became a huge organization. And what were they flying then in, in World War II? Because I imagine there weren't many gliders because, you know, the war was on and things were in storage and all that. The, the main glider used in the, in the Second World War for the air training, uh, air training corps was the Slingsby Type 7 cadet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was known as the Cadet TX-1 uh, in service. Um, and uh, this, I mean, it was a single seat 
uh, glider. So the you know the instruction was still very much you know your instructors on the ground. You, obviously, you've done all your theory and uh, and looking at things, um, but at the end of the day, you know you're you're shown the controls, um, but it's you know on your first launch, it's up to you. Um, so that that's what they had in 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 the Second World War for the Air Training Corps, and uh, it, it was there was a lot. So by you know by a year after the end of the war, May 1946, um, these were f- being flown by 87 gliding schools um, across the country. So yeah, 87 gliding war, schools. It's hard to imagine. I mean, and that that is huge. Yeah, it, yeah. It was by the end of the war. It was a massive, massive organization. And was this the heyday, the end of the war? Did it get larger in the 50s and 60s? Um, well, I've, I've, I mean, the heyday. That's where we're going to be looking at the yeah sort of sixties, seventies, eighties. That's when uh, you know we had the big wooden glider fleet, um, and one of these actually was uh, the the Type Twenty One, which was the uh, yeah the, the lineage that the, the Sedberg came from, the barge. Um, right, and this glider, it, many are still around today. They call it the barge. I mean, it is a massive aircraft, side by side, and it has this very large, iconic wing. Kind yes. of sort of on a pylon on top of the fuselage. If anybody looks it up, it's 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 a very interesting looking aircraft. Yeah, yeah. So there were basically two. Yeah, in the height in this, the heyday, this wooden gliding fleet, and um, there was two main types. So we had the uh, the barge, the Sedberg, um, basically nick- nicknamed the barge. It kind of would you know it sailed. I think very. Uh, <laughs> very elegantly through the air but um but it did the uh, job it did the job yeah and uh the other the, the other glider they had was the cadet mark three so the barge was uh it it soared well um you could thermal it um i mean i, I some gentlemen i was talking to they were talking about you know they were flying opposite a civilian glider, glider club who had the more you know when they had their modern Sort of geo, you know glass reinforced plastic gliders so they could out out climb them on the thermals but when they came out of the thermal um the barge then did kind of yeah uh, <laughs> want to return to, to terra firma whereas you know the new gliders they could go off and find other thermals i can um, completely relate i have a, a world war ii training glider called an lk-10a on those on those weak fall days where the, the thermals are weak and uh, and narrow you know you can just Go, fly slowly and get into the thermal, whereas the other large gr- glass aircraft can't, and it was always kind of enjoyable. Might, yeah, but to your point, you couldn't go far. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I think what what they liked about the barge um, was, in terms from the instructor's point of view, um, was that you know you're next to the cadet um, and they can see everything you're doing. So, I think generally when they had the cadets in for the first experience, and certainly for the air experience flights, rather than you know going for your gliding certificate. Um, they did like to use the barge because uh, you know, it, it was reassuring for, for the cadet. They could see what you're doing. Right. The other glider, which was Cadet Mark III, which was this, this was um, uh, basically the Slingsby Type 31. So this was the um, tandem cockpit uh, glider. So still uh, the wing mounted above the fuselage, a uh, 43 foot, three inch span. Um, and this came into service in 1951. So a year after the barge. And that was. Uh, yeah, called the Cadet Mark III, um, but that was often referred to as the brick. Um, because <laughs> the brick and the barge, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and these are all open cockpit. Yes, yeah, open cockpit. Um, I know the barge. I mean, 
one of the I was speaking to uh, he said the you know the, the barge would uh, saw on a fart I think was uh, <laughs> one of the things he said um, and obviously the the downside to that being if if there was any kind of uh, wind or poor weather um, then you know that they'd be putting the barge away because uh, I, I think making headway in it if you've got a headwind was uh, quite difficult. Yeah, you wouldn't, want to, you wouldn't want to be caught downwind because it would have very poor penetration to get back to the gliding club. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, but, but, so it was kind of a teamwork. You had the, yeah, the Sedbergs, the barges going up for air experience um, and for the first couple of flights, and then you had the cadet, you know, tandem cadets doing the circuit bashing and getting the gliders at A and B certificates. Now, those, those gliders have all been retired now? Yeah, so uh, they lasted until the sort of eighties. It was the the early eighties when the decision was made to retire them. Um, so yeah, you know, a, a lot obviously came onto the civilian market uh, in, in in the mid eighties, um, and that's when they were replaced by you know, sort of the more modern glass reinforced types. But but so eighty years later, the Air Training Corps it's still extremely active, right? Is it is it still very popular with the youth? I mean, compared to years ago, how how is the Air Training Corps now? Everyone I spoke to. Um, um as wax lyrical um and and yeah you know talking about so many careers of yeah fast jet pilots or you know service pilots airline pilots uh one gentleman interviewed he he didn't get to RAF but he's now he's been a professional balloon pilot um so yeah it, it was it was absolutely instrumental in in launching hundreds if not thousands of um of of you know aviation careers um and i guess you know maybe sadly it, it you know in the eighties, when you look at what we, you know, <laughs> in the cold, obviously the height of the Cold War, um, obviously so the Canadians, we had you had the Starfighters, the Voodoo's, um, we've had, you know, we had the the Phantoms, the Tornadoes, Jaguars, you know, the, the the size of the Air Force, you know, 30, 40 years ago compared to now is just unbelievable. So, you know, yeah, is is it reflecting the sort of drawdown of of numbers at the same time? But but. Yeah, definitely. It's it's it was an, a huge thing for a lot of people, and, and I suppose you know, one of the gentlemen interviewed, he was he was saying it, it gave him that direction that he needed in his life at the time. You know, you're mm-hmm. a teenager, you're you know, you've got lots of things going on, um, and it's very easy to go off a straight, you know, fall off the rails or whatever. And he for him, it, you know, you're it gives you that focus, that direction, that pride in doing things. Um, you know, you you could be soloing in a glider. At the age of 16, you haven't even known drive. You know? I can absolutely relate because here in Canada, we have something called the Royal Canadian Air Cadets, which is the similar thing. And uh, yeah, yeah, I spent the summer when I was 16 and got my license and uh, has had a huge impact on my 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 life and flying and all of that. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, no, de- definitely. It's, 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 yeah, it's been a massive thing for a lot, a lot of people. And, um, I, and there are still groups, for example, uh, we have a, a 61 volunteer glider school historic flight um, who... Mm-hmm. They've got a fleet of, the, of of these historic gliders that they fly regularly. Yeah, there's there's still a lot of a lot so, of these gliders uh, out. Well, I sure hope you get up in in a in a barge at some point, uh, <laughs> COVID permitting. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I've been uh, Andrew Jarvis has uh, has off, offered me a flight, so I'm just waiting for yeah things to settle down. Um, so I can, I can go and have a look. It should be great. Well, Andrew, listen. Thank you very much for telling us about the the Air Training Corps. Interesting organization with a fabulous history. So appreciate you telling us about it. No problem. Thank you, Harry. And- All right. Take care. Bye bye. 
Andrew Critchell's article on the Air Training Corps can be found in the June 2021 edition of Aeroplane. Andrew is also the author of A Tale of Ten Spitfires, which can be found on Amazon. This next story is about how an inexperienced pilot can get into some real trouble, the kind of trouble that could be potentially lethal. Will Nyland is a recently licensed glider pilot, but still a novice pilot and inexperienced cross-country pilot. But he's a smart, competent, even-keeled kind of guy, and he's a pal for my gliding club. Will is on the line from his home in Stratford, Ontario, to tell us the story. Hello, Will. Hello, Harry. So... This flight that you had, tell me the story. What was happening that day? Harry, as you know, I'm a newly licensed pilot. Just got my nice blue book in the mail about two, mo- two or three months ago. So today, on this fateful day, I decided to take advantage of a really good-looking sky and try and do the racetrack. It's about a 50-kilometer uh, trek that we do to prove uh, we can actually go cross-country. It's my first real try at doing this from the club alone. So I released some tow at about 2,000 feet, cautiously headed north to Reed's Field. And I turned there and headed, headed for Peter's Corners. So this is one turn out of the way. This is just a local little racetrack that we fly. Yep, yep. It's, well, there's, there's three points on it with the return to the club. Right. One is Reed's Field, there's a Peter's Corners, and the Cambridge Mall. Right. So I'm about to you know, get the one out of the way. I'm starting to feel a little bit confident. Um, I headed for Peter's Corners, got some lift to about 5,400 feet, started feeling really good, made the turn to Peter's Corners, and started for Cambridge. So I passed Sosa at 3,800. And you know, Sosa, Sosa being so the guiding club. And, yep, yep. And, 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 uh, and also, well, what, what are you flying, actually? Tell us what you're flying. Flying a single-seat junior. It's a, it's a small single-seat aircraft that is used as an intro to uh, cross-country flying right. by yourself. It's not a two-seater with an instructor in the back. So lower, lower performance, I'm, I'm fiberglass, back. fixed wheel, yeah. Yeah, it's about 35 to 1 lift ratio. It's, you know, it's respectable. It's not one of the ooh-ah ships, but uh, it does the job. So, so you're so, flying uh, along in good conditions. Good conditions. I'm feeling good. I got nice altitude. Um, we were taught to try and maintain enough altitude to make a glide back to the club in case we ran out of lift. <clears throat> so these little gliders, for about every thousand feet, you're good for about ten kilometers horizontally to get, uh, you know, for in flying conditions. It's pretty respectable. So I headed up for Cambridge. I'm about a third of the way there. Uh, it's about 10 kilometers, I believe, from the uh, club to the uh, turn point. So four kilometers from the club, flying at about 3,200 feet. I tried a thermal. Didn't gain much. Tried another one about two kilometers further in. I lost 100 feet. I got out and I flew on. So I should have known by this time that the lift wasn't quite as good as it was uh, 20 minutes ago. And I guess it does change, doesn't it? It does, yes. Yeah. So at this point, I'm getting pretty confident, or not confident so much, but um, I guess I had brain lock set in. I just had to make this last turn point to prove that I could do that. You know, I could do this turn and get back. 
carried on. I'm about eight kilometers out of Sosa, two kilometers from the club or from the uh, turning point. And uh, I found another weak thermal. I gained 100 feet. So I didn't have a choice here. I should have uh, yeah, made a choice to either stay here and get more altitude or head back to the club. I could have just made it with the amount of altitude I had. Mm-hmm. Stubbornness set in. I thought, you know, I can do this. So I headed for the turning point, made it. And it came out and left at 1,900 feet. And I am now, if, uh, if I had to make the club on the final glide, I could not make it. So at 1,900 feet, you're roughly 1,000 feet above the ground here. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. And that's where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be roughly 900 feet, 900 to 1,000 above the ground at Sosa to set up my landing. And meanwhile, you're still 10 kilometers away. I'm still 10 kilometers away. I'm uh, flying on until I basically ran into where I could see the treetops are going to take me before I got any farther. At this point, Sorry, let, just let me let's stop there just for a sec. You, what did you just said? You thought that you were so low that you could see the tops of trees almost. Is that what you were saying? Oh no! What I'm saying is I'm so low that I knew I couldn't get past the next set of trees without hitting them. Okay, right. So yes, terribly yeah. low. Terribly low. I cleared some high tension lines. Made a turn to the left. Saw a field. Headed for it, and just as I made the turn, I saw another set of power lines running the other way uh, across my line of uh, flight that goes to the farmer's house. So I pulled back on the stick a bit to make sure I cleared them. When you do that, you slow down and you lose lift, and basically I made a hard landing. It wasn't a complete stall, but it wasn't a very good landing. It was a hard landing in a bean field. And... Uh, I had to call for help. <laughs> so you, you land, you're okay, the glider's okay, but you're you're shaken up. Well, I'm shaken up, and uh, the glider actually looked to be fine. It was full of mud. Um, it, hit the, it came down the field. It was a very, very short roll-up because the beans, I guess, stopped it. Plus, I caught a wingtip, and it kind of spun me 90 degrees to my line of travel. And... Um, we stopped, I got out, and I had lots of time to think about my sins. So, to back, to back this up a little bit, so you actually didn't really select a field. You just kept going and going, and then you made a last-minute, desperate decision to find a place to land. I was forced to land in this field. There's no two ifs, ands, or buts about it. Hmm. I was forced to land here because I ran myself completely out of options. Right. Right. Now, I've been flying for quite a long time, and I've, you know, been on final glides where sometimes it's a little bit on the edge, but, you know, you, you get a bit nervous. You're looking at what's possible and what isn't, looking at your options, but you're not a super experienced cross-country pilot, obviously, and this is one of the reasons why you wound up in, in this corner. Um, yeah. what, what, what do you think was going on in your in your mind as you were getting lower and lower and lower. What, t- talk to me about the thought process that was going on with you. I guess a bit of mental lock moved in as well. Uh, maybe like uh, you, know, you, you kind of lock your hands on the wheel and you see something coming at your car and hope the hell it misses you. Excuse my language. Right, right. I think a whole lot of that moved in as well. I locked up for a few seconds. 
it cost me more time. So things started to, you know, you got tunnel vision is what I, I'm hearing from you. You, you, you. You're focused on getting to the gliding club and you're, you're ruling out other options kind of thing. Basically, there wasn't much ruling going on. I just basically had tunnel vision. Um, and I, I think a little bit of the fear of the unknown was what setting in. Mm-hmm. And not having landed anywhere but the club before. Right, right, right. Now, at, at what point did you realize you were in trouble? I think I realized I was in trouble when I made the turn at the mall. I'm at 1,500 feet or 1,900 feet, realizing unless I found something really miraculous, I was going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. <coughs> now, well, I, you've, I, you've, you've had some time to think about this and, and, and what happened, and... What kind of advice would you give other novice pilots or even relatively experienced pilots like me? What what did you learn from this and what uh, what advice can you give us? The first thing I would say is don't depend on luck. I, I think make sure you do the math. We all know that you can fly for a certain distance with a certain amount of altitude. So don't leave yourself in a position where you're depending on luck. And I think that's what I did. The, um, if you keep your altitude, you have options. You have, you can find a decent thermal, if possible. Mm-hmm. If not, you've got a, a time to set up a proper landing. You need about 1,000 feet uh, AGL, which is above ground, to make a proper landing. Um, yeah, that would be the one I would say. Don't depend on luck. Right. And had you set out limits for yourself, for example, when you were flying that at a certain altitude or height above the ground, that you had to pick a field and, and not move on? And were you following that recipe or, or did that go out the window as well? That went out the window. I had that and uh, I threw that away when I decided to make that last turn point. Uh-huh, right, right. At that last, at the two or three kilometers from the final turn point, I decided to take the chance and make it and, and make, a, make a go of it. That's when I threw away any common sense and went with luck. Right, right. Well, you know, we've all been there in certain points in our lives or different things that we've done. And uh, it's for me, it's really fascinating to hear you because I know you're a super reasonable guy. You're, you're not some young kid who's full of bravado or anything. You're a, you know, mature guy who, who knows things about life and decision making. And that's why I find this fascinating that you're kind of the last person I thought would, would do something like this. And that's what makes it really interesting. I'm almost 70 and still act like a teenager sometimes. That scares me. Right. <laughs> so I, I think, and that we all do this. I really don't think the age has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I've, I've got to say thank you for telling us about this, this close call you had. And, you know, many of us experienced or less experienced can learn from stories like this. Um, you're back in the saddle. I understand you've you've had a flight again. I took a flight yesterday. I took my first flight since the incident, and uh, everything went well. Good, good. Well, we'll appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the time. Stay safe, and uh, I'll be seeing you at the club. Thanks, Harry. Okay, take care. Cheers. Cheers, bye. Bye-bye. Will Nyland spoke to me from his home in Stratford, Ontario. Mm-hmm. 
that's it for episode number 27 of The Thermal. I can be reached at thethermalpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's thethermalpodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back late fall with another edition. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.